Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 135. Glad to have you back in the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, the usual stuff. If you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find me on social media on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, and of course you can subscribe to my YouTube page. If you Just look for Brian McClanahan. If you want to skip that process, go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. There you'll find all my social media buttons at the top of the page. Click on those, and it'll take you right to my accounts. Also, while you're there, give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook, Forgotten Founders, with the audiobook read by yours truly. Also, if you're at brianmcclanahan.com, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, and you can help leave a few pennies for the podcast, help keep the lights on, help keep everything going. Any little bit is appreciated and welcomed. Also, just want to remind you about my McClanahan Academy from now until the end of December. You've got some discounts for my courses on Secession. You can get it for 25 bucks using the coupon code 15Secession. And my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America course, which corresponds with my book of the same title, you can get that for half off. Just go and use the coupon code HALFHAMILTON. And if you want to sign up there, you can. It's free. And you'll get uh, updates about any future course offerings or any discounts that I have. So go on over to McClanahanAcademy.com and you can uh, sign up for that material as well. Okay, all that said, um, what I want to talk about on this particular episode is um, something that uh, I think is uh, overlooked, or at least has been in the last year or so, and that's the 100th anniversary of World War I. And World War I, in so many ways, is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, because uh, I just read an article about a year ago of a worker, I think it was in Belgium, who was uh, helping digging out a parking garage, and he blew up from an ordinance from World War I. So there's another civilian casualty from this war that was, at the time, the largest and most destructive war in human history. About 40 million people were killed or wounded in that particular war. So until World War II, I mean, it was the Great War, as they called it. Uh, and as we've gotten to the 100th anniversary, we're at the century mark. You know, 1914 is when the war began in Europe. And, of course, the United States became involved in 1917. And they were about this point. It was the summer of 1917 into the, uh, into the uh, winter of 1918 uh, that we saw uh, American involvement at its, at its peak. And, um, or into actually the, you know, the, the uh, summer of the next year. And uh, it was here that the United States uh, turned the tide of the war. And that's because we provided fresh men and material to, uh, frankly, a worn-out French and British defense on the Western Front. Now, the Eastern Front had already been closed because the Russians had pulled out of the conflict by 1918. But, so the Germans were focusing exclusively on the Western Front. And so Americans are going to get involved. We lost about 100,000 men in this particular war, and it, it wasn't a very popular war when the United States got involved in the conflict. In fact, um, there was a lot of opposition to this war. Now, I don't really want to get into all of that 
from a U.S. perspective. What I want to talk about is the war in the long perspective, the long durée. I've talked about that phrase on this podcast a couple of times, the long durée, because World War I would not have been possible without the wars of the 19th century, and more importantly, would not have been possible without a unified Germany in the 1860s. And unified Germany would not have happened without the Napoleonic Wars and, of course, the, the previous French Revolution. So I want to talk about that, and I'm going to look at it through the framework of a book that was published in 2002 by a man named Philip Bobbitt. The title of the book is The Shield of Achilles, War, Peace, and the Course of History. It's one of these comprehensive books that uh, I think does a very good job. There are, there are some, I think, is, a few issues with it, but he does a very good job of putting the 20th century in a much different perspective. And so when historians go back and we look at different periods in uh, Western civilization or world history or American history, we like to compartmentalize things in very short little chunks, unless we're talking about history from a from an earlier period. For example, um, if you look at Roman history, you have the Pax Romana, and that particular period of time from the Empire of Augustus to the uh, Five Good Antonies, you're looking at over a hundred years of, of, a, of an epic in Roman history. You, you break these things down. You look at Egyptian history, you have, you have different dynasties and kingdoms that last for hundreds of years. And so when we look at earlier history, we like to put these things into much longer periods of time. But when you start talking about more recent history, it's, well, we've got the Seven Years' War, which actually lasted nine years. We have the Hundred Years' War, which actually lasts 114 years. So there we have a longer perspective. But we start doing these things, <clears throat> you know, we have World War I, we have World War II, like they're two completely different things. Or we have the French Revolution, then we have the Napoleonic Wars, then we have the Wars of Unification. And again, they're, they're considered to be different epics. But in, what Bobbitt does, which I think is very good, is he actually looks at all of these things, particularly in the 20th century, as what he calls the Long War. And the Long War began, in his estimation, in 1914 and ended in 1990. So essentially what you had was, at the beginning of World War I, a war, a continual war, that lasted until the end of the Cold War. And I'm going to get into what he says about that. Now, my, my one critique of that particular position is that I think you can actually say, now, he, he, he gets into this, my, my critique here, he does, he does address it, but I think you cannot say that World War I is the beginning of the Long War. Essentially, I think you have to say the beginning of the Long War was when Napoleon assumed power in France and began the process of spreading nationalism throughout Europe. And he began that process, not immediately, but of course, you know, Napoleon assumes power in France in 1799. And then uh, by the early 1800s, is smashing through Central Europe. And I think that's, that's when this war really began. Um, now, you can say, well, that wouldn't, Napoleon wouldn't have even happened without the French Revolution. And of course, the French Revolution, the French Revolutionary War, has introduced a new type of warfare. And one of my fields in graduate school was uh, military history. And the French Revolution certainly began a process by which the citizen is much more involved in warfare, at least in the modern age, much more involved in warfare than they had ever been before. Now, you could go back into the classical period and talk about, say, the Athenian model, where you had the citizen-soldier, 
um, who was a blacksmith or a potter or something of that nature. And they were called to go out and defend Athens, or at least even wage war against the Persians in an offensive manner. And so you could say that you had the citizen soldier in classical Athens. Certainly, you could look at the Spartan model, which where every male citizen was a soldier, but they were all professionals because they didn't do anything else. That was their occupation. Spartans were soldiers first, and then farmers second, and they had all of the helots to do the work that they didn't want to do. The slaves on their plantations, their estates. So certainly you did have, in the Greek world, the citizen-soldier. And then moving forward, you had the Roman model, where you did have the citizen-soldier again, those who were called into service to go and fight and defend Rome against whatever enemies they had. Even when you look at the Punic Wars, the citizen-soldier was essential in the Punic Wars. Now, Rome lost much of the Punic Wars in the early part of that and did not win until they were able to get Hannibal out of Italy. But certainly the citizen-soldier in this, this firm, uh, you know, kind of a middle class in Rome was really the backbone of the early Roman Republic, this early citizen. And part of that was the need for the citizen in the army. The, the patrician class could not abuse the middle class in Rome because they needed him for, this, for, the, for the army. But even then, um, the citizen in Rome was a little different than when you got to the citizen requirements or what was required of the citizen soldier when you get to the modern age. Now, people like Niccolo Machiavelli, Machiavelli's The Art of War. Now, most people don't know about Machiavelli's The Art of War. They simply know about Sun Tzu's Art of War, but Machiavelli's Art of War and what he did in that particular book, and of course he's writing this about the same time he's, he's writing The Prince, what he did in that particular book was interesting. He looked at the Roman models, and he looked at that idea of the citizen soldier, and he thought, and there's some other parts of the Roman model that was interesting as well, and in fact we still use uh, part of the Roman model in our modern military with our fire teams, our squad-based uh, units on the battlefield. This is what the Romans had figured out after the, the phalanx that was failing them against different types of armies, particularly the Celts. They came up with what they called the maniple, which was a, a f essentially a fire team. This was a unit that could move on the battlefield independently, and had some autonomy. And essentially that's what you have with your smaller fire teams now on in the modern military. Uh, and so, your squads. And so, uh, this innovation, Machiavelli was ahead of his time. And of course, he's writing in the Renaissance. He's ahead of his time in this. Um, he was also ahead of his time in diplomacy and some other things. But this is why, you know, most people didn't read The Prince when they read Machiavelli. They read The Art of War. And so, when you look at innovations and you see these things coming, and then, of course, you get into the British model, which had developed even before Machiavelli, but the British model, of course, the militia, the man-at-arms, the, the armed citizen of, uh, well, it was the English model before it became the British model, but the armed citizen in England. And, of course, you did have in, in Europe during the Middle Ages, eventually, I mean, before Machiavelli, you had the professional soldier, and you did have some type of militia where you had the farmers who had to defend themselves. But, of course, that was inadequate against the Vikings and really against the Germanic invasions. It didn't work well. 
particularly against the Vikings, who were like the Spartans. They're professional soldiers, and so you had to have a professional soldier class, the knights, to be able to resist the Vikings. But the English had figured out that also the citizen needed to be armed against the barons, against the landed estates, and more importantly against the king at times, because uh, this was there was always an attempt to usurp power. And so this man-at-arms, this non-professional soldiery class became very important in England. And that militia, this idea of a militia, the militia, the citizen soldier, whether it was Rome or Athens or even the English model, became the basis of what became the American model, where you have the citizen soldier, the militia here. But when you get to the French Revolution and you look at the European model, which had developed over time, uh, even in England, which became Great Britain, by the time we get the French Revolution, we're at Great Britain, which was formed in the early 18th century. When you get to that time period, you're looking at large professional standing armies, which were the vehicles of kings. When you get to the um, Enlightened period, you talk about uh, Louis XIV and his large, very large army, the largest army on the continent. And then, of course, the British would have to match that, and they would have professional, a professional military, whether it was in their navy, but they also had a standing army. And this is what the, the American colonists were so much against, is this standing army being placed in British North American colonies. Uh, but you certainly had a standing army, and so that became the European model in the 18th century. But it wasn't until the French Revolution that this was expanded out even more, and it started to involve the common citizen, because these armies had to be very large to do what the French, Revolution, French Revolutionary period required, and that was to spread the revolution, essentially. So then you started getting what was called a levée en masse, which was the essentially the mass conscription of the French citizen. And that produced a type of nationalism that no one in Europe had seen before. So these citizens, these French citizens, and of course in France, if you do not address each other as citizen, you could be hauled off to the guillotine or maybe drowned in the war or shot to death with a cannon, uh, blown apart. So if you, didn't, if you didn't do these things, if you weren't a revolutionary enough, you were, it was hazardous to your health. So these citizen soldiers became essential to this revolutionary model. And Napoleon knew it. Of course, as Napoleon was helping defend the revolution in Italy, he was well known before he became Napoleon the dictator. He was Napoleon the organizer of men. And Napoleon had studied quite extensively people like Charlemagne and Alexander the Great. And those were his models. And he loved Roman history. He also liked Caesar. And of course, when you look at what Caesar had, was an army that was loyal to him. And that's the, that became in the early empire... That became the model, whether it was, or at least the late Republic, whether it was Gaius Marius or Lucius Cornelius Sulla or Julius Gaius Caesar or Gaius Julius. It, it was, it was, uh, that was the model. The, the, the army was loyal to them and them alone. It was a personally led army. And so, um, 
the point was, and, and Napoleon knew that, if he could whip his men into shape in Italy, he could take a ragtag militia, which is what he had, and make them an effective fighting force, they would be loyal to Napoleon. And so as you look at the Napoleonic Wars, you had a large number of men who were loyal to Napoleon more than anything else, particularly as marshals, Michel Ney, for example. But this was... This was the idea, of course, at the same time, you're developing this nationalism, this French nationalism. And if you look at the 19th century and you look at Louis-Philippe, he was the king of the French, the king of France. And so once you get to the middle of the 19th century and you start talking about this populist wave, this this nationalism that was unleashed by Napoleon. So after Napoleon's out, remember, if you don't know your French history, but you have the restoration of the monarchy and Louis Eighteenth and Charles X. But then you have Louis-Philippe, who is the king of the French, not the king of France anymore, but the king of the French, and he starts wearing the pants of the, of the commoner. He wears a military uniform, not the robes of the royalty, of the Bourbons. And so that type of, of ideology, that type of, of environment, that culture, Bobbitt says this creates the nation-state, helps create the nation. Before that, you had the state-nation, but now you have the nation state. Now he says this is there were still some problems with this, but again it is creating it is creating the climate which is going to produce World War I. Now you have the nation state. And everything is being centralized. And I think Bobbitt does a nice job explaining that. In fact, this book is more than just a military history, as the as Michael Howard, who is a great military historian in his own right, says, this book is unique in that it combines warfare, the history of international relations, international and constitutional law, into a com- comprehensive study. It's about 900 pages. So it's uh, you can get it pretty cheap now and used, but um, he does that, and I think in a very effective way. Nobody really. That's that's the problem with modern history. I'll just take an aside for this, and that people write monographs, and you know they they take a little narrow subject and they write a little monograph. These comprehensive studies like this are rare because they take a tremendous amount of of time to write, uh, and they are um, they're difficult, and of course they can be game changers if you do them right. And it's not just you know we're going to write a comprehensive study of diplomacy. It's not just that. It's a particular theme, in a way, that covers a large swath of history. And I think they're much more effective than these small little monographs. You can use the monographs to fit to fill in holes. But these comprehensive histories are so important. I mean, you could probably even include the United States in a comprehensive history outside of U.S. history itself if you're looking at, say, for example, Western civilization. You could do that. But um, I, I think that when you're looking at this, this rise in Napoleon, again, the nation-state, and how that works, and where this comes from, I think that you have to, he calls it the Long War, 1914 to 1990. I think you have to go back earlier than that, because as you get to the unification of Germany, and he does talk about this, how important that was, the unification of Germany, and the process of creating the nation-state, because that's what sets the stage for the long war. No unification of Germany, and no World War I. But without Napoleon, you don't get the unification of Germany, a Prussian-led Germany. You don't have 
the rise of Otto von Bismarck uh, and the rise of Prussia as a centralizing power, a centralizing force in Germany. And of course, Italy is part of this process too. Now, Italy had been unified before, but not for, by the time they're unified in, 18, in the 1860s, not for over a thousand years had Italy been unified, really. I mean, you had different periods where Italy was able to cobble back together by, um, for example, the Byzantine Empire. Uh, there was a short period of time. But for the most part, Italy had been uh, a, a place that was uh, disorganized. You had maybe Frederick II was able to do a little bit of cobbling together of Italy, but uh, it never reached the same type of status as it had during the Roman Empire. But by the 1860s, of course, it's unified again because of Italian nationalism. And so this nationalism is unleashed in creating the nation state, these very powerful centralized states. I think Bobbitt does a nice job of saying it was centralization that leads to this great big nasty war that begins in 1914 and doesn't end until 1990. And essentially he says that the struggle here was between parliamentary democracy, communism, and fascism. And this was not resolved until 1990. And he says everything that was in this period, whether it was the Bolshevik Revolution, the, the Spanish Civil War, World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, where all of these great struggles were simply part of a larger struggle between this parliamentary democracy, communism, and fascism. And only victory by one could bring peace. And so he says all of these major conflicts during the long war were fought to maintain legitimacy. And he says that World War I did not begin by accident, World War II did not begin with the invasion of Poland. And essentially what he's saying is that Germany, by Prussia, the Prussian-led Germany, needed to legitimize its standing in Europe. And so it agitated for a war. And if you look at what's happening in this period of time, whether it's the Franco-Prussian War, which brings about German unification, whether it's the, it's the uh, humiliation of Austria, essentially what Prussia is trying to do is say, we are a major power, and we are legitimate. And so I think he's correct about that. He also says that Japanese and German advancements prior to the invasion of Poland in 1939 were warlike actions and could be classified as war. Of course, the Japanese occupation of China certainly was an act of war against the British. And he says this conflict really began as a, as a result of competing political systems. He doesn't think that fascism was born in a vacuum. In fact, he thinks it was created because of the German constitution prior to 1914, the unified German constitution, not the decentralized Germany, which had been the case for much of German history after the fall of Charlemagne, in the, or at least Charlemagne's empire, after he divided it up, after his son divided it up, I should say. And then it was divided into three parts, East and West Frankland eventually. But he says that all these little duchies, these little kingdoms, prevented a particular type of nationalism from taking place. And so fascism began in Germany before they even called it fascism. But once World War II is over and fascism had been discredited, you still had the parliamentary West facing communist challenges throughout the world. It's just a different type. You know, fascism and communism are two shades of the same, two sides of the same coin, two shades of the same color. 
But he says, you know, even though the United States and the Soviet Union were the two main combatants, other governments and regions became involved in a worldwide struggle for domination. And Bobbitt argues that the United States' policy of containment, though much maligned in the academic community, had the desired effect. The Soviet Union was gradually suffocated and free market parliamentary democracy triumphed. Bobbitt even calls the Vietnam War a success because it allowed other non-communist countries in Southeast Asia the opportunity to strengthen their political economic system by remaining unmolested by communist intrusion. And so this is an interesting position. And he says that this is all part of a constitutional innovations in the constitutional order that began in the 15th century. And so this is why I like this book, because he doesn't just focus on the military. He gets into constitutions. He gets into the legal structure of these different places. Now, I, I think in so many ways, if you read this book, and it, for me, it was an influential book. I mean, again, published in 2002. It was an influential book in looking at history in this long period. And I think we fail to do that, again, at our own peril. But um, he says that he says that military, he challenges the idea that military history, history has to be viewed in a linear fashion. Uh, he does talk about advancements in artillery and technology. All these things produced greater centralization in the 15th century. Advancements in infantry tactics and formations, along with more efficient gunpowder weapons, ultimately allowed for the creation of kingly states from the 17th to the 18th century. And then following the wars of Louis XIV and the Seven Years' War in Europe and the American colonies, European powers recognized the need for greater resources and civilian conscription. And so the result, as I just mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, was the creation of their large standing armies that effectively were effectively used across Europe in the 18th century. So he says this creates the territory state. But he also says what you get out of this is the view of, quote, the state as a solar system rather than the reflection of, a, of the personality of a sun king. This solidified legitimate state control of the citizen army, from conscription and training to administration and equipment. So you were not fighting for the kin and king any longer. You were fighting for the state. And then, of course, you get the state nation, what he calls the state nation. The state was able to organize and engage large numbers of citizens without taking direction from the nation. In essence, the ruling party extracted resources and talents from the population without allowing nationalism to erode and destroy its power. But that would change with the Napoleonic Wars, as I mentioned before. And Bobbitt, of course, says that the nation-state that was formed in the 19th century, which I already talked about, he says it's obsolete now. The nation-state, this is a really fascinating part of this book. He believes that the nation-state has become obsolete. Now, of course, it's hanging on. When you look at what's going on in Spain with the secession of Catalonia, the nation-state is hanging on. This is, this is when we start talking about things like secession, that's part of this, of this resistance to the nation-state that is firmly taking hold in the 21st century all over the world. The nation-state is losing its grip. And what he says is going to replace it is what he calls the market-state. 
the market state. So Bobbitt, in some ways, sounds kind of like a libertarian. Uh, he's saying that uh, what you won't have anymore is this very centralized national control. What you're going to get is a much more decentralized regional model based on markets, where markets and communities will take over. And I think that's, the, that's a really interesting part of this book. You don't often find an academic who will advance that position. Well, I mean, the nation state, is, it's served its purpose. It's run its course. Now what we're going to have is a decentralized system. Uh, he, he talks about the reason why. He actually looks at it from a military spe- perspective. He says nuclear weapons foster the development of chemical, biological, or, or cyber weapons to force projection and power. And all of these threaten the security of a people living in a nation state. So large public debt threatens the financial security of the nation state. And mass communications allows the public access to information that could damage the character and prestige of the nation state. Therefore, the nation state no longer has a monopoly on information and propaganda. This is true. When you look at the internet and what's happening, this is all true. Now, he's saying this in 2002, and I think you're really seeing the fruits of that now in 2017. Certainly with things like podcasts and blogs and uh, instant access to news through things like social media. No longer does the nation state have a monopoly on what goes on. Now, they keep trying... They're, they're not going down without a fight, but certainly, and of course, this could be you know, a very long process, but I think people are waking up to the abuse of the nation state. And so because of that, you have the threats, the existential threats, the military threats, things the nation state cannot protect you from. The nation state can't protect you from terrorism, for example, in a, in a comprehensive way at all times. Uh, I can't do it at all. And of course, when you look at libertarian philosophy and when it comes to one of the reasons that people subscribe to it is its reliance on trade as a form of peace because market states would have at their basis the peaceful transfer of goods and services as a way to maintain peace and order and stability. And so he does get into different types of systems that he thinks are going to result in, or are going to be part of the United States. But he does see this all as part of a, of a uh, decentralization process. Now, he does look at things. He does say, well, there, there, could, be, there could be the opposite of this. You know, there are different models that could take, take hold. Um. And this could lead to more imperialism. It could happen. And I think that's the neoconservative position. So what you have to find is a way to resist these type of things. And he is, I mean, Bobbitt uh, is, I think, in in many ways, an internationalist when it comes to foreign policy. But... um, I really like this book because I think he does things that no other historian really do, and that's and that's looking at the development of the, the conjunction of military, what the military has done to the constitutional order, what the military has done to the political and social order. Uh, he's doing things that most milita- military historians miss. Most military historians are concerned about strategy and tactics, but they miss the political part of it. They miss the social part of it. 
And so this book, Shield of Achilles, I think does a nice job in bringing all these things together in one comprehensive study. And I think that's why military history is valuable. That's why military history is important. I know, again, libertarians oftentimes want to avoid military history because it is something that doesn't fit. I mean, we like libertarians like economic history, but you can't look at economic history, as Bobbitt points out, really in a vacuum. It has to be part of political history, and it has to be part of military history. All these things have to work together. You could say, well, maybe economic history is the, is the origin of military and political history. I don't think one is the origin of the other. But you cannot ignore the role of the military in the formulation of economic and political theory. They all work in conjunction, and I think that's why The Shield of Achilles is such a valuable book, because it gets into these things. And, of course, The Long War, which I would say actually began not in 1914, but 1789 with the beginning of the French Revolution. We had 200 years of war because of that French Revolution. And some might say, well, no, actually, it's the American War for Independence that began this. And certainly you could say, well, I mean, that, that did help give the French the idea to have a revolution, though the two things were different. But certainly you, you started looking at a different type of warfare in the 18th and 19th and 20th century, the late 18th into the 19th and 20th century. So if you'd have the time, again, you can get this book and get it in your library, but you can also buy it pretty cheap on Amazon now. Go out and get Bobbitt's book. You're, you're not going to agree with everything, but it is a worthwhile, if you're interested in these type of topics, it is a worthwhile study of the combination the, 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 of the military, the constitutional order, the political and social order, and even economic order, and what war does to those things. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.